0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: Before we get going today, I'd like to thank my latest supporters on Patreon, Mary Pat, Clyde and Mandy. Your support means so very much to me and you're all amazing. It really does help the show. You're all great, are in fantastic company alongside all my other patrons. If you'd like to join them and help me out, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash queens of england podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 61, Henrietta Maria of France, Her She-Majesty Generalissima. As said in the first episode of this mini-series, I'm not going to be going into a deep dive on the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, also known as the British Civil Wars, or, as I'll be calling them in this series for short, the Civil Wars. It is a deeply fascinating topic, full of stories of great heroism, cowardice, intrigue, glory and tragedy, but it's a far too broad topic for this podcast to deal with in detail. That said, I think it is worth giving you a little bit of background to things I may have skipped over in the last couple of episodes in order to present a clearer narrative. The tensions that were present at the start of Charles' reign can be summed up by two things, really. Taxation and religion. Parliament, as I'm sure I've mentioned before, had to approve all new royal taxes. This gave them a de facto veto on whether or not a king could go to war, as he could not very well prosecute a successful campaign without the money to pay his troops. This came to a head very early on, when Charles asked for a big tax to be collected in order that he might go and attack Spain. Both he and Parliament disagreed on the size of the tax, for how long he could collect it, and what direction the war should take. Parliament was also a fairly religiously conservative body as a whole, and so were worried about the influence of Catholics around the king, not least his wife. This led to a dispute between the King and Parliament, which only ended when Charles dissolved it in 1626, when they demanded that he dismiss Buckingham, though Charles still collected the taxes that they had not approved. When they were called again two years later in 1628 because he needed more money for the war, they were understandably pretty pressed off and adopted the Petition of Right, which basically accused Charles of acting unconstitutionally and demanded he stop forcing through illegal taxes and imposing martial law. He, furious at their intransigence and insubordination, prorogued Parliament until the following year. Again, Parliament was outraged at the illegal taxes, toleration of Catholics and unconstitutional acts of the King, and went so far as to hold the Speaker of the House down in his chair to prevent him from calling an end to the session while they berated him. He finally did dissolve the session again in 1629. He didn't call another Parliament for 12 years, leading to the period of personal rule that I talked about a lot last week. Okay, so that's a very quick summary of the political situation in England. Charles could, very legally, rule England without Parliament, but if he wanted to do basically anything of note, especially anything military, he would need money, and would therefore need to call a Parliament. But since he didn't want those busybody know alls to give them their impudent opinions and protests, he didn't. But everything changed in the late 1630s. And it all started when a woman threw a stool at a dean. So there are two spheres about how this is all going to go down. The domestic and the international. And since the domestic is much more important, I'll get what was happening on the continent first. And yes... I promise I will get to Henrietta Maria soon. So over in Europe, the Thirty Years' War was still in its phase where it was essentially a religious war, with German, Dutch and Scandinavian Protestants on one side and the Catholic powers of the Greater Habsburg Empire on the other. Before you all write in, yes, it is more complicated than that, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm generalising. Well, England was not engaged in the war, largely because Charles couldn't afford to be because he wouldn't call a parliament and there was growing pressure on him to do something to aid those brave continental Protestants who were fighting desperately to retain their freedoms against the hated Habsburgs. Now, Scots, to an extent, were involved, mainly as mercenaries in the armies of the Dutch and Swedes, and many of them, most notably Alexander Leslie, became heroes at home. But Charles' refusal to help because of his refusal to deal with the root cause of parliamentary anger was stoking a lot of tension in Scotland in particular. So, what about the domestic front? So, you may remember William Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury, from last week. Well, it is a little ironic that he came down hard on Henrietta and her cadre of Catholics, because to the Conservatives of Charles's Kingdoms, he was about as popish as you could be while still calling yourself a Protestant. Now, remember that the Reformation in England and Scotland had gone in two different directions, with Scotland going down a far more hard Calvinist route than England had they still retained a lot of the old hierarchy, with bishops, colourful vestments, and decorations, that sort of thing. The English approach was then codified in the Book of Common Prayer, which, albeit in a significantly revised state, is still used in Anglican churches around the world to this day. To Scots, this all smacked of disgusting popery and Catholic backsliding, and they wanted no part of it. So when Charles and Lord attempted to impose the Book of Common Prayer on the Scots, well, it didn't go down so well. There was rioting, most notably in Edinburgh, where legend has it that a woman named Jenny Geddes threw the stool that she was sitting on at the Dean of St Giles Cathedral when he began to preach from the book. The Scots formed the National Covenant, which formalised the opposition. After a tense standoff, it was clear that English troops would be needed to bring these Scottish rebels, known to us now as Covenanters, to heel. But as I've mentioned about a billion times already, to raise troops, you needed money. To get that, you needed to raise taxes. To do that, you needed to call a parliament. And Charles I really, 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 really did not want to call a parliament. And so now, finally, we get to Henrietta. The first thing she did was to lobby her husband to get high positions in the army given to members of her own party. In that, she was successful, as her great friend and ally Henry Rich was made general of horse, amongst some other members of her extended army entourage. But mostly, she threw herself personally into the war effort, doing her level best to raise all the necessary money from every avenue that she could, so that Charles could avoid doing the thing he really did not want to do. Since the Scots were religious extremists in her eyes and that of her followers, she looked to the English Catholics for support, as they had the most to lose if the Covenanters' ideology spread south to England. She wrote a letter, affirmed by her own personal steel, to all Catholics in the realm, formally requesting that they send men, money and arms to help fight the Covenanters. This campaign was coordinated by a committee led by the papal ambassador George Con, who sent out delegates throughout the kingdom to drum up Catholic support for the war. They were instructed to paint this as a religious war in protection of the renewed rights that they enjoyed under Charles's regime and emphasise the threat posed by the Covenanters. These letters declared that, quote, It is sufficiently known to everyone the extraordinary graces and protections we owe the Queen's majesty. It was not just Catholics that she listed help from, but the ladies of the court as well, who were encouraged to give up their jewellery to help support the war. This was all, in short, a horrible idea and a terrific mistake. Think about it. You're a good English Protestant. You probably have been forced to pay some taxes or even forced to make a loan to Charles's government that you know to be illegal. You see some Protestants in Scotland who you think are probably a little on the radical side for your tastes, rising up to defend their brand of religion and in response, your king appeals to hated Catholics to put them down. Which side would you be on? What makes this error in judgement from Henrietta all the more heinous is that she did so without the king's permission. She was creating, along with the papal ambassador, a militant royalist Catholic party, which was giving good Protestants significant pause. In some ways, it was back to that fundamental dilemma raised by the Reformation of who to support, God or the king. And what makes all of this so much worse is that after expending all of this political capital and risking the religious settlement of the nation... The amount raised from all of this was just £14,000, barely enough to support the army for a week. Nonetheless, Charles managed to cobble together some troops and march them north, but it was an utter fiasco. Henry Rich turned out to be a crappy cavalry commander, but he wasn't the only one. All the Scottish commander Leslie had to do was parade his troops in front of the demoralised English generals, and they agreed to a truce in the pacification of Berwick. It was the greatest Scottish victory over an English army since Bannockburn, at least in my opinion, and barely a shot had been fired in anger. This tremendous failure meant that Charles had no choice. Upon the urging of his chief minister, Thomas Wentworth, the Earl of Stratford, he was forced to call a parliament. When this body convened in the spring of 1640, they began, as was by now traditional, by making a series of speeches against the Crown. The most notable one was given by John Pym, who decried, quote, the great encouragement that is given to them of the Popish religion by a universal suspension of the laws against them, and some of them admitted into public places of trust and power. No one missed the completely unsubtle attack on the Queen there. Parliament refused to vote any money to Charles unless their grievances, financial, constitutional, and religious, were dealt with first. He refused, dissolving Parliament. And this is the first parliament of the civil wars period that gets his own name, because, and as it only sat for three weeks, it became known as the Short Parliament. But Charles still needed money to fight the Covenanters and restore royal authority to his kingdom beyond the wall. So he went and did something super risky. He went to the Spanish and asked them for a loan, promising to declare war on the Dutch in exchange. Meanwhile, Henrietta appealed to her brother Louis Thirteenth and the Pope, but what really made the effluence hit the fan was the Earl of Strafford, who asked Irish Catholics to raise an army to fight the Scots, which scared the bejesus out of the English, who thought that Stratford would instead use that army to squash Protestantism in England. When news of this got out, there was rioting in the streets. Archbishop Lord was forced to fortify his house, and a letter was sent to Charles threatening to, quote, "'Chase the Pope and the Devil from St James's, where is lodged the Queen?' Chants echoed throughout the streets of the capital, and graffiti was found saying, quote, God save the king, confound the queen and her children. Known Catholics were attacked by lynch mobs throughout England as a climate of fear and paranoia swept across the kingdom. Now, this seems completely irrational from a domestic standpoint. Catholics made up about 5% of the population and posed no real threat to the religious settlement. But on the continent, Protestantism was in a far more precarious position. The three great powers of Europe, France, Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, were all ruled by Catholics. And while that remained the case, there would always be fears of a Catholic-backed invasion or insurgency. After another attempt to quell the Covenanters with the forces that he had at his disposal failed, again, not helped by Henrietta lobbying for her own men to be placed in positions of prominence despite their total lack of military talent, Charles was forced to agree to humiliating terms. Northumberland would be occupied by Scots at Charles' own expense, but worst of all, a parliament would have to be called, which would ratify the treaty. This one would not be as fleeting a parliament as the ones that had been called before. It is known to history as the Long Parliament, as it would last, in one form or another, for two decades. Now, you may remember that I ended last week's episode by reading from the list of demands that the Long Parliament had when it's sat for the first time. Specifically, the ones regarding the Queen. They demanded that she no longer have any say in the King's policies, or in who served in high office, or really anything for that matter. They saw her as a threat, as a reason for the evils gripping the kingdom, and so wanted her hands as far away from the tiller as possible. Things were getting perilous for Henrietta and her supporters, as worshippers emerging from the Queen's chapels were pelted with stones and threatened with weapons. For these people, the Covenanter Scots were, quote, angels sent by God to deliver the kingdom from idolatry and tyranny. Parliament intensified their attacks, accusing her of waging a religious war on the Covenanters, the end goal of which was to restore Catholicism to England. Realising the danger, Henrietta wrote a letter to Parliament in which she essentially played dumb, playing into the stereotypes that men had the time had of women. She stated that she had not knowingly done anything wrong in asking for money from Catholics and offered an apology, saying that she would be, quote, "...more cautious hereafter not to do anything but what may stand with the established laws of the kingdom." Sadly, this did not do much to calm the fears of the parliamentarians, who then went after the Earl of Stratford, throwing him in prison while they prepared to put him on trial. He was even more than Henrietta blamed for Charles's conduct throughout his period of personal rule. Now, it probably would have been prudent, given all of the tension, for Henrietta to keep her head down and just try to get through this passively. But that's just not how Henrietta rolls. Instead, she got involved in the army plots, where groups of nobles, amongst them members of her own faction, such as George Goring, Henry Jermyn, and John Suckling, attempted to use the army to launch a coup against Parliament and free Stratford. Henrietta met with them personally and was involved in the plots, but everyone was betrayed when Goring lost his nerve and told Parliament everything. This brought the crowds out onto the streets again, and rumour turned to speculation that a pan-European catholic crusade led by Henrietta's brother Louis the thirteenth was poised to invade the royal family were in very serious danger here, and Charles did consider gathering his family and fleeing to France. Strafford was executed after Charles was forced to sign a bill of attainder, and Parliament appointed special guards to protect Henrietta, but really they were there to watch her like a hawk. Given the climate of fear, it is unsurprising that Henrietta desperately wanted to get out of England. She stated that she was suffering from severe depression and stress and requested that she be able to visit Spa, which is, and was, a famous health town in modern Belgium. She also outlined the amount of money that she claimed the trip would require, which was suspiciously high to parliamentary eyes. They refused to let her leave. And then came the straw that broke the camel's back. News reached England of an uprising in Ireland, meaning that now the second of Charles's kingdoms was now in the grips of war. Catholic nobles and peasants rose up, forming up what they called the Queen's Army, and began a violent insurrection that was catastrophised and exaggerated in the English press. They failed to take control of the island, but the stories coming over of horrible war crimes, babies cut from mothers' wombs, Protestants cast out of their homes and left by the sides of the road to die, outraged Parliament and the public. They were in no doubt that Henrietta was behind this, that she had orchestrated the whole thing with her friends, both in England and on the continent. They went so far as to prepare a bill of impeachment and put her on trial for treason. Charles tried to defend his wife by first denouncing the Irish rebels, making it known that he and his wife did not support the rebellion, and then attempting to arrest five MPs who he deemed to have gone too far in their criticism. This was a hugely provocative move on Charles's part. But again, Henrietta got the blame. One journalist there stated that, quote, a good hand assures me that all of this is done by the Queen. Another rumor was shared that claimed that Henrietta had egged Charles on, exclaiming, quote, go, you coward! Pull those rogues out by the ears, or never see my face more! Well, that last one is naked propaganda. There is no doubt in my mind that she was, at the very least, hugely supportive of this attempted coup. However, when Charles went to arrest the MPs, they were gone, with one theory stating that they had been tipped off by Lucy Hay, one of Henrietta's ladies. It was clear now that war was imminent, and so plans were again made to get Henrietta out of England. This time, though, Parliament agreed largely because they so believed in the idea that Henrietta was this Machiavellian puppeteer that they thought that Charles would be putty in their hands with her gone. So, in February 1642, Henrietta set sail from Dover to Holland, accompanying her daughter Mary as she had just married the Prince of Orange. It was an emotional and tearful goodbye, as neither husband nor wife knew what might happen next. They may never have seen each other again. He promised not to come to terms with the rebels without her agreement and kissed her goodbye. According to one witness, Charles's quote, love for the Queen is beyond expression, and on this account he suffers greatly at seeing her go. While well, her excuse for going to Holland was to escort her daughter to her new husband, really her task over the coming months was to raise awareness, money, and military support for Charles. Now the problem here is that she was in a Protestant realm one that had been at war for decades against the oppressive rule of the Habsburgs, and so was not exactly naturally inclined to help her. Indeed, one of her first actions, there was to lobby to prevent Dutch mediators from setting sail to England to try and stop full-scale civil war from breaking out. She was soon joined by all her pals, german Goring, Montague, Davenant, the whole lot, forming a kind of shadow court in exile. Her next move was to try to pawn the crown jewels in an attempt to raise the money needed to get some troops over to England, but Parliament was wise to this, making it known to the Dutch that these had been illegally stolen by the Queen and were thus unavailable for sale. She did manage to sell some smaller pieces, but could not raise anything close to what was needed. She was, though, successful in other money-raising schemes, mainly through the procurement of loans. And soon, supplies were reaching England, as the kingdom braced itself for war. While this was all meant to be a secret, such things cannot be kept under wraps, and two shipments were intercepted by Parliament and destroyed. That said, though, given the lack of cards that she had to play, the fact that she managed to get so many supplies from the continent to her husband, was a truly remarkable achievement, and speaks much to her drive and organisational ability. She also sent a constant stream of advice to Charles, chiding him for his slow speed when he did not try to secure the port of Hull as speedily as she wanted. She wrote to him, quote, I hope that you are more constant in your resolutions. You have already learned to your cost that want of perseverance in your designs has ruined you. To the parliamentary rebels, Charles appeared completely intransigent. But this masked Charles' own deeply held insecurity. He was not a self-confident man, and continued to rely heavily on the advice and backbone supplied to him by Henrietta. To her... He seemed to be willing to try to make some common cause of Parliament, but she was having none of it. Quote, for my own consolation, I hope the contrary till I hear the decision, for I confess that if you do it, you ruin me in ruining yourself. I should never have quitted England for my journey is rendered ridiculous by what you do. The truth is that I see I shall be constrained to my misfortunes, to retire to some place where I can pray to God." So here she is basically saying that if he did not do exactly as she told him, she would leave him and retire to a nunnery. Parliament were not exactly barking up the wrong tree when they claimed that she was such a strong influence on Charles's decision-making and behaviour. But lest you think that all of this meant that she hated her husband, listen to this section of a letter that she wrote to her friend Jean Saint-Georges. Quote, "'Pray God for me, for believe that there is not in the world a more wretched creature than I,' "'Separated from the King my Lord, from my children, absent from my country, "'without hope of returning thither, without danger, and forsaken by all the world.'" The First English Civil War finally broke out, officially, in September 1642, with the Battle of Edge Hill. Henrietta followed news to the war closely, desperate to return to Charles' side, as she knew how much he relied upon her. But with the southeast of England in parliamentary hands, the only safe harbour for her would be in the northeast and that would mean a perilous journey with no guarantee that she would not be intercepted and fall into enemy hands. Think what an incredible bargaining chip she would have been for Parliament. Her first attempt in January 1643 to make it to Newcastle ended in failure, but the next month she did finally make it back to Blighty, landing in Bridlington in northeast Yorkshire. She brought with her one final load of supplies from Holland, including 1,300 men and £80,000 in cash. However, this landing spot was not far from Parliamentary-controlled Hull, and they sent gunboats to fire on her flotilla as they unloaded. Henrietta had to literally dodge bullets and cannonballs as she fled into the town for safety. Royalist parliamentarians accompanying Charles at his court in Oxford castigated the rebel troops for firing on the Queen, Denouncing this, quote, most barbarous manner to murder the Queen's Majesty by making great shot at the house where she lodged from her repose after a long voyage. Which is, you know, one way to look at what happened. After surviving this attack, Henrietta linked up with the Royalist Army, commanded by the Earl of Newcastle, and marched to the regional capital, York. Her mere presence in the north made her a beacon for the royalist cause. As troops flooded in, she started to send supplies and reinforcements to royalist generals in the region. She also personally negotiated with the governor of parliament-held Scarborough to come over to the royalist side. It is said that he was persuaded to switch sides after kissing the Queen's hand. Soldiers in the north became known as the Queen's troops. Such was the importance of her involvement. Not since Margaret of Anjou, an English queen, had such an important involvement in military matters. She referred to herself to her husband as, quote, Her She-Majesty Generalissima. From a position in York, she managed to secure almost all of Yorkshire, bar Leeds and Hull, and formed her own court, from where she organised the war effort and received embassies. The most notable of these came from Scotland, where two competing royalist nobles, the Marquess of Hamilton and the Marquess of Montrose, came to seek her support. Montrose asked for £10,000 to raise a royalist army in Scotland, which, at the time, was inclined to support the English Parliament, while Hamilton advocated for a policy of peace fearing that antagonising the Scots might lead them to send troops south. Henrietta backed Hamilton and his policy of peace, saying that she would later come to seriously regret. She did not, however, advocate peace with Parliament, and word came to her that Charles was once again considering a truce. She wrote another furious letter, quote, If you make a peace and disband your army before there is an end of this perpetual Parliament, I am absolutely resolved to go into France... Not being willing to fall again into the hands of these people, being well assured that if the power remains with them, that it would not be well for me in England. This was not just hyperbole either. At this very time in Parliament, one member made a speech that, quote, the principal papist now in arms against us is the Queen, and moved that she be charged with high treason for having, quote, levied war against Parliament and Kingdom. The motion passed. Henrietta, before her husband's guilt had even been considered, was now a traitor in the eyes of Parliament. The extent to which this letter influenced Charles is not clear, but the fact is that he rejected parliamentary peace terms and continued to fight. But in the late spring of 1643, Parliament regrouped in the north and won a series of victories against Henrietta's armies, including against George Goring at Wakefield, where he and 1,500 of his men were captured. This great setback meant that Henrietta, against her will, acquiesced to Charles's request that she leave the North and link up with him in Oxford. Now, if you'll permit me a little bit of self-indulgence, this is one of my favourite parts of our story, as it all takes place around where I wrote this episode in the Bodleian Library. When Henrietta arrived, she and Charles enjoyed a rousing reception from the loyal townsfolk, culminating with a speech from the mayor at Carfax Tower, which is about 300 yards away. Henrietta based herself at Merton College, which is even closer, and used this chapel for Catholic Mass. Charles was based at the nearby Christ Church College, in whose meadow I have sometimes gone to write episodes during the summer. One of the joys of history is to feel connected to people in the past, and this is a very rare opportunity for me to do that. Anywho, digression over, there was much anticipation of Henrietta's presence at court, but trepidation also. Henrietta was very much more pro-war than Charles was, and was seen by Parliament as the greatest roadblock to peace. This was why they had let her go off to Holland, and why they had worked so hard to keep them apart ever since. This attitude is shown clearly in the pro-Parliament press. They painted her as the master puppeteer, the person who was really pulling the strings. The Kingdom's Weekly called her the cause of quote, the present miseries and distempers. The Perfect Journal, said that, quote, "'Nothing is to be done without her consent. "'No, not so much as any offers of the state "'that can or will accept of any place of honour "'without her approbation and consent.'" Another article wrote that, quote, "'The Queen has now attained to great height of power "'as formidable as she is to us "'in regard to the nation, "'in regard to her disposition, "'in regard of her family, "'in regard of her religion.'" and lastly, in regard of her engagements in these present troubles. Some think she has an absolute unlimited power over the king's sword and scepter, which, if it be so, no end of our fears and calamities can be. No propositions can profit us. No accommodation can secure us. Another publication stated that, quote, the king refereth all affairs to the queen, and is directed by her counsel and advice. Now, You don't need me to tell you that you shouldn't believe everything that you read in the press, much less such markedly partisan outlets, not to mention this was during a civil war. They used this propaganda for a few reasons. The first is that most of them genuinely believed it to be true. Charles had marketed himself to the kingdom as a family man who loved his wife and took her advice. Moreover, she had proven herself to be a capable and vocal operator... While her influence was not nearly as powerful as claimed in those articles that I just read, there is no doubt that she was a key adviser and influencer. Second was the issue of religion. Protestant zealots were in no doubt that Henrietta was some sort of second coming of Mary Tudor, and that her end goal was to reimpose Catholicism. That is how they had viewed the appeal to the Irish and the army plots, and they still believed that that was what she was working towards. You can see that in the fact that her troops in the north were named both the Queen's Army and the Popish Army. The third is that it was convenient for them to do so. I have already said that many people were very unwilling to openly criticise the king, even while in revolt against him. This wasn't really out of fear, necessarily, It seems to be some sort of reflex or learned behaviour based on centuries of repression. It was far easier in attacking royalists to use Henrietta's foreignness, Catholicism, and the fact that she was a woman as a means of battering their cause, rather than going after their real enemy, Charles. It also potentially would give Charles a face-saving way out, should he have ever wanted to take it. So, back to the Queen at Oxford... With the Royal Cow back together, it was time for everyone to assess the situation and work out what to do next. So what did the situation look like in July 1643? Well, it was actually fairly evenly balanced. Charles's base at Oxford was well defended, and the troops that Henrietta had brought south were immediately dispatched under the command of Charles's swashbuckling nephew, Prince Rupert, to take the crucial port city of Bristol to the west, which they managed after a great victory at Roundway Down. This meant that the road lay open for Charles to combine all of the royal armies and march on London. But there was still a potential flaw in this plan, and that was Gloucester, which was still in enemy hands and could threaten the rear of the royalists. Henrietta, who almost always seems to favour the most gung-ho approach, wanted to attack London. In her mind, he had to strike while the iron was hot. They had Parliament on the run after having won victory after victory, Now was the time to press her advantage and take back the capital. In this, she was supported by all her usual supporters. Rupert, on the other hand, favoured a more cautious approach of taking Gloucester first and then marching on London, and it is this plan that Charles approved. Henrietta was furious, as she often was when Charles went against her advice. But more than that, she actually went so far as to disregard his orders, Charles accompanied his army to Gloucester and left his wife instructions to tell the Earl of Newcastle as commander in the north to begin his march south, but she refused. In the end, the siege of Gloucester was a failure, and Charles's choice of disregarding his wife's advice would cost him dearly. His decision to take Rupert's advice over hers was, though, not an isolated incident. While he still leaned on his wife to a significant degree, when it came to military matters he tended to take the advice of his generals, especially Prince Rupert. This is... Perfectly understandable. They were experienced soldiers. She was not. This did not mean, though, that Henrietta stopped being a strong influence on Charles now that she was by his side. No, sir. She instead returned to one of her favourite activities, which was patronage. I talked a lot last week about how she gathered around to a loyal group of followers, and that she stood by them and got them important roles no matter what. Well, this didn't change just because they were at war. Henry Gemin was ennobled, making him Baron of St. Edmundsbury, and many other of her supporters, whose names I won't trouble you with, also got noble titles. George Digby, another favourite, was made the King's Secretary of State. And all of this did not go unnoticed by Prince Rupert, who claimed in his memoirs that she withheld sex from Charles until she got her way, or the anti royal express in London, who said that, We know who can rule her husband at Oxford. They claimed that she was surrounding Charles and his army with Catholics and this was all part of her plot to restore England to Rome. But this wasn't all she was doing. Let's remember that one of the reasons that Charles had married her was because of her foreign exalted connections, and it was hoped by all that she could use these to get foreign help. She had done a good job under very difficult circumstances while in Holland, but of course the real prize was assistance from her home nation of France. Up until this point, she had had no real luck with gaining French support, largely because Cardinal Richelieu and Louis Thirteenth were opposed to her, thanks to her support of her mother, Marie de' Medici. However, by 1643, both had died, leaving her five-year-old nephew, Louis XIV, on the throne, and his mother, Anne of Austria, as regent. Henriette had always got on well with her sister-in-law, and she managed to secure a gift of £20,000 to the king's war chest, but that was all, really. France was benefiting greatly from England being distracted from affairs on the continent, and so the Regency government were largely content to let their neighbours across the Channel tear themselves to pieces. She needed something new, and in true Queenly style, she saw marriage as the best way. Her great bargaining chip was her son, Charles, Prince of Wales, and began to lobby for a marriage between him and the daughter of the Prince of Orange. This would be a very advantageous marriage for the Dutch, and would no doubt lead to them sending their crack troops over to England, or at least she hoped. She was also in negotiations with her brother Gaston, Duke of Orleans, for Charles to marry his daughter, again in the hope of gaining foreign assistance. But, alas, all of this came to nothing. And then 1643 came to an end, the war began to swing decisively away from the Royalists. A Scottish army came down and forced Newcastle into a retreat. This army then linked up with two parliamentary armies, and suddenly, Oxford was threatened from the Northeast, and Henrietta had another problem: she was pregnant. Now, I ran through all of her pregnancies and children in an earlier episode, and to avoid confusion and date overload, I didn't tell you when they were all born. Well, while in Oxford, she and Charles conceived another child, and by the spring of 1644 she was only months away from giving birth. Given her age, it is not surprising that this was proving a difficult pregnancy, which is why she had not been in the thick of the political action of the previous few months in Oxford, relying on her supporters to promote her causes. With the position threatened and it being impossible to have her moved anywhere quickly, it decided to get her to Bath and then Devon, a safer location, until she had given birth. On the 17th of April, 1644, she left Oxford with her husband accompanying her a few miles down the road to Abingdon before they parted ways. It was an emotional goodbye, but they thought that she would be back by his side before too long. They had suffered partings before, this was not the end of the world. But how wrong they were. When Henrietta departed Abingdon for Bath, leaving her husband to travel back to Oxford, she had waved him goodbye for the last time they would never see each other again. She arrived in Bath a few days later and then travelled south to Exeter, where she gave birth to her final child, Henrietta. But the West Country was not the safe haven that Charles and his generals had thought, because the Earl of Essex led a parliamentary army to attack Exeter and try and capture her. She was forced to flee in disguise into Cornwall, seeking to take a ship from Falmouth to France. After her first attempt ended in failure, as the Cornish were unwilling to see her leave the country, she finally made it out of England in mid July. Before she boarded the ship, she penned Charles a letter, but read, Adieu, my dear heart. If I die, believe that you will lose a person who has never been other than entirely yours, and who, by her affection, has deserved that you shall not forget her. And that seems to be as good a point as any for us to leave the story for this week. Next time, We will see Henrietta attempt once again to serve her husband from the continent, acting as his cheerleader to drum up men, money and foreign support for his cause, and continue to send him a constant stream of advice and admonition. It was well-meaning and done with love, but would possibly end up costing him dear.